Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning and welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Today I have my friend Olivia. Let me tell you a little bit about Olivia. This is Olivia Robinson. She is involved in ferreting out crime and dealing with it. Uh, she in, she investigates fraud and white-collar crime. She's been doing this for years. Good morning, Olivia. Hi, Francie. Nice to have you on the show. You're back. You, it's been a while since you were on the show. I've been maybe, uh, I'm thinking about three years or more. It's been a long time. It's been yeah. a long time. And in the meantime, you escaped from Northern California to Southern California. <laughs> I did. I've been here for 10 years now, so long oh, time. I really? Well, maybe yeah. it's been 10 years since you were on the show. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Olivia, t- tell us a little bit about uh, your company and what you guys do. My company is Background Intelligence, and we specialize in fraud and white-collar crime. Um, typically, we look for um, the money. We find out where money has been hidden by the bad guys. We also look for uh, who the bad guys are. So we identify uh, the perpetrators and uh, where they've hidden the money. Important in all of this is to discover patterns of behavior because somebody may start off with a small heist and then they get emboldened and they typically repeat it over and over again uh, until it kind of grows in magnitude. So if they've gotten away with it once, they think they can get away with it again. So that's basically what we do. And the applications are um, for court-appointed receivers. We do a lot of work with receivers. But um, what I really wanted to talk to you about today is how our work applies to elders and elder financial abuse. And so um, I've invited my friend, Carrie Kasem, to uh, join us here today to talk about elder financial abuse. And she will be joining us shortly. And so, yes. uh, Olivia, you, you have a book that's coming out real soon, Elder Financial I do. Exploitation. Um, I'm sorry? Elder Financial Exploitation. It's where money exactly. and age meet. Yeah. Yes. So when do you anticipate that coming out? Well, I keep adding more stories. That's the problem. So um, it's really talking about uh, the the uh, who's involved in uh, an elder um, uh, in an elder situation, both kind of describing the role of a victim and what makes them accessible to the perpetrator. Typically, we find that a victim is pretty frail in terms of either their body or mentally they may have dementia, Um, and often they know the perpetrator, and frequently it's a family member or somebody that they really need to rely on for their care. So it's uh, the book really describes who a common victim is, also the... the, 
the role of a perpetrator. And typically, a perpetrator, as I mentioned, may be a family member, but it's somebody that is able to gain the victim's trust. And uh, this may be over time, um, but they, the perpetrator takes increasing control over the victim's life. And this could be either like a next-door neighbor where it may be very informal or it could also be legally they take control over the person's life. And the end result is often that the victim is isolated. They're isolated from their friends. They're isolated from their family. And um, so it's a very insidious kind of situation. Olivia, how did you get... Uh, started down this road of investigating fraud? Well, I'll tell you how I got involved in... uh, The answer is, in 1982, (laughs) I was in the oil and gas business, and uh, the whole industry tanked. And so I hung out a shingle, and I started doing work for corporations, largely boards of directors. And uh, I discovered discovered that they were very interested in their competitors and how to, get, why, how to gain information about their competitors. And that's how I started. And started really looking at um, hard-to-get information that competitors had that would help uh, my clients uh, either do a merger or an acquisition and uh, would be able to ace out the competitors. So that's kind of how I started. Okay, so, and I know you're a licensed private investigator in California. How did that come about? Well, (laughs) there's a story there. You're not going to like this. (laughs) I I was operating, uh, doing my competitive work, and my attorney said, Olivia, we now have new licensing requirements for private investigators. I think you need to be licensed. I was in Washington at the time and was grandfathered in. And then when I came back to California, I um, got my license here. Very interesting because I think the rules have changed so dramatically since then that uh, you probably couldn't do it that way today. Yeah. Well, yeah. and you know, Francie, when I when I came back to California, I'd been practicing, you know, for decades, and um, but I uh, there weren't at that time there were no um, what am I trying to say? No um, preparatory materials to take the exam. I fa- failed it twice before I actually oh passed. Yeah, no, it was really scary. They asked questions that I knew nothing about, so. Anyway, finally passed, got my license. That's really nice of you to disclose that because I know there are people listening here that have done the same thing and are worried about passing the test. So, but you know, the reality is uh, the test isn't is not easy, and uh, it shouldn't be. Well, and they ask questions that have nothing to do with my life, you know, like what kind of bullets go in a gun, that kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) So things I'll never (laughs) use, you know. That's all changed. That's completely changed. They've revised the test every three or four years. Well, so. and now they have now they have um, things to pre- help you prepare. Right. Right. Yeah. That's true. When I took oh. it, my daughter-in-law was literally making flashcards to help me remember things. So. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. So, and then how did you get on the track of elder elder financial fraud? Do you know, it was a family situation, and 
I was involved in a really sordid um, elder financial abuse case, fraud and elder financial abuse involving a family member. And it was so devastating and highly destructive. And, um, uh, you know, it was a really painful time. And it was during that time that I met Carrie Kasem. And as Carrie will tell you, she... Um, has the most amazing organization uh, helping people that are going through cases like mine. And she has an annual conference, and when I went to her conference the the first year that I attended, in fact, I think it was the first year she had it, um, I felt as though I had just come home. I was surrounded by 300 people all going through the same thing. And so instead of being isolated, fighting this thing out by myself, I was then, you know, surrounded by a support system. That's great. That's great. Well, she'll be joining us soon, and we'll be talking to her. But in the meantime, what do you look for? What are your objectives uh, when you go into a a new case? Do you know the... um, it it really depends. We're talking about elders now. It really depends where the individual is in their pursuit. Often they may be uh, just becoming aware of um, of the reality of a situation that they're no longer able to have contact with their mother. Um, that somebody, a caregiver, is restricting their access. And this happens a lot. And they want to know why in the world this is happening. And so they then may go to an attorney to try and figure out, uh, you know, what recourse they have. So my reaction is really dependent on where the person is in, in their process of dealing with elder financial abuse. And... Often people are, they don't know where to turn. One of the first places I tell them to, uh, to turn is to carry Kasem and Kasem Cares, which is her organization. Um, but the, you know, they're often very distraught. Uh, when, I, when I first talk to um, somebody dealing with elder financial abuse, and I caution them that, um, their decision may result in years and years of dedicated commitment to whatever course they decide on. So it isn't an instantaneous gratification kind of deal. It's a long emotional journey, and um, it can be very costly. Uh, my case cost $500,000, and one of the things that is very prevalent, I've discovered, is that often attorneys that are involved in this may not have the most ethical, um, may not be the most ethical. And frequently, as in my case, uh, attorneys quit in the middle of a case. Um, Mm. Many of my clients have had attorneys that have quit at a pivotal time in a case. So... It um, it's very costly in terms of uh, whoever is walking this path. It can be costly in terms of their family relationships, um, their friendships, and it takes a huge mental and physical toll. 
Olivia, do you mind talking about your personal case a little bit? I can talk a little bit, yeah. Tell, just tell us a little skeleton sketch of it. Well, um, it involved my mother, and she uh, died when she was 98, uh, a number of years before, probably five or six years before she started showing signs of dementia. And um, at the time, she lived in a really wonderful uh, retirement community and had uh, lots of friends. She had meals with all of her companions in the dining room. She had her own apartment and was very happy in this place. And then she fell and broke her ankle, and her dementia kicked in big time after that. And... um, so through a series of actions, the um, other family member that was part of this, who had power of attorney, and that's kind of the key in all of this, um, made started making arbitrary decisions, universal, I mean, not universal, but uh, he made the decisions himself and started isolating her. And so it that's what kind of triggered the whole thing. But one of the... Um, things that I'm sure Carrie will talk about is the role of whoever has the power of attorney really has the key to how well the their, the loved one is taken care of. And um, so it's really critical to... Um, to make sure that whoever has power of attorney is, you know, is ethical and is thinking about for the person that they're supposed to be caring for, as opposed to self-interest. Okay, okay. So, so that there's a pattern there that starts with the person that's in charge of the financial area. Well, and the the power of attorney is kind of divided up. Um, there are two roles, and they may be two different people that have these roles. One of the powers of attorney is over financial uh, matters, and the other is over health care. And so often it's one person, but it can be two people doing this. Okay. The difficult... The difficulty that people find, that families discover, is that if somebody with power of attorney does not have um, the loved one's best interests at mind, they can create havoc. And there is little recourse for uh, the family to... Um, to gain, you know, access to their loved one. And one of the things that, I hope Carrie joins us soon, one of the things that she will tell you is that um, she has been a role model in terms of introducing legislation throughout the country. And uh, she has a visitation bill and I can't remember how many states it's actually passed in, but maybe here we are. Um, it protects uh, the rights of family members to be able to visit their loved one. And so um, her bill, her visitation bill, has actually passed in 12 different states, and a version of it has passed in 21 states. And it would have made all the difference in the world in terms of my case, 
where uh, in California it had not passed at the time that I was going through my situation, and uh, literally there were threats of getting a restraining order out against me, so I would not be able to visit my mother. So, um, But thankfully, Carrie has been diligent in taking her visitation bill uh, around the country, and so she's been very successful in getting it passed. And Olivia, Carrie has joined us, I believe. Carrie, are you there? Hmm, I thought Hi, she everybody. Us. Yes. Oh, there Hi, she is. Hi, Olivia. Carrie. Hi, Carrie. I was just talking Hi. about you. <laughs> I've so been Car- listening the whole time. <laughs> Carrie's been Carrie's driving, folks. So, uh, so we may have a little transmission problems. But join. Thank you for joining us, Carrie. Uh, Carrie Kasem. Carrie, tell us how you um, started your foundation and why you did that. Well, I started my foundation simply because there was no other legal recourse to see my father, and uh, what happened was my father was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2007, and we knew that when my dad got sick enough, and I'm meaning me, my brother, my sister, my dad's family and friends, that when he got sick enough, uh, his wife would keep him from us, and we were right. When he was in his last year of his life, we didn't know that, but when he was, she not only told my brother, my sister, myself, uh, all of his friends that, you know, you're not going to see or talk to him again. She took away his, all forms of communication, fired his staff, and uh, closed, literally closed the gates to their house. So uh, we called the police. I called the Adult Protective Services. Nobody could help me. Uh, we went to court. And I soon realized that once you turn 18 in this country, you have no right to see your parents. So as I was going through a court case, I was told by my lawyers, by my family, oh, you're never going to win this. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your house. Uh, I fired all of anybody, like my lawyers, anybody I had hired that didn't believe in me. I told my sister and brother and the rest of my family to get out of my way, hired an attorney who would help me. And I continued to fight my stepmother on this. And like Olivia said, uh, there is really no legal recourse. There's re- it's re- Once there is an uncooperative caretaker and you're in a residential home or an assisted living, you are not getting in if that, that caretaker doesn't want you to get in. If you're in a hospital or if you're in a nursing home, there's the patient's bill of rights you can use to get in to see that person. Most people don't know about it. But... Because I had um, I had some knowledge of politics because I'd done a political talk radio show, uh, I decided, okay, well, if, if the court is not going to grant me visitation, I'm going to change the law. So as I was, uh, you know, in, in court fighting this, I was up in Sacramento, the capital of California, uh, lobbying to change the law. <laughs> and, uh, and I eventually did win an impossible court case against a wife of 34 years because I proved egregious elder abuse. Um, But, you know, as I won, she took my father, and this is very, very public, she took my father from state to state, hiding him in three different states, and when I found him in Washington State, uh, I I had to fight uh, in their court system so that my guardianship slash conservatorship would would hold up there because it was not, it it was void once it crossed states. 
uh, I did win that. I got into a hospital that was too late to save him, and he did pass away. But I've continued to fight for people uh, in my same situation for the last six years. And, and Carrie, what was her objective? Is, was there a large estate, or was she just being vindictive? Yes. She had changed all the will and estate plans, and most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time it is uh, financially motivated. So um, when, you know, I'm dealing with people that are in my same situation, most of the time there's a house, there's assets, there's a will and estate plan that has been changed. Uh, you know, a lot of times it's just days or, or months before the person has died. So when they're in their right mind and they've made all their will and estate plans, when they are, when, you know, they, they want money, you know, the, the person who is sick wants money to go to their children or their grandchildren or their philanthropic endeavors. Um, you see that all being changed in the last month of life. And that should be completely illegal, and it's not. Carrie, what what is your background? Uh, what do I do? I'm a TV and radio host. I've been <laughs> one for 22 years. <laughs> you've been, I'm sorry, you've been doing I, what? You've been doing what? I'm a... I'm a TV and radio host, and I've been I've been a I've been a talk radio host for 22 years, and uh, you know that that's been my bread and butter. But getting into politics and starting this foundation has really been my passion. Well, for people that and might be interested, Francie, in, excuse me a second, Olivia. For people that might be interested in your talk show, where would that be? Where would they get that? Uh, you could tune in to KABC on the weekends. Just look for the times. Like it's it's called Gurvey's Law. It's a law show on the weekends on seven ninety KABC seven nine seven ninety KABC in Los Angeles, and it's called Gurvey's Law, and it's on the weekends. Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you. I wanted. To, um, um, Francie, I wanted to make sure that Carrie talked about the hotline that she has for people involved in elder uh, abuse questions, elder abuse questions, and the reason, I mean, this is a very valuable resource. So, Carrie, can uh, can you tell how people can get in touch with you? Sure. Sure. My foundation is called Kesem Cares, and you can find us at KesemCares.org, and there is a phone number. We're the only organization dealing in this kind of elder abuse that actually runs a hotline. So uh, you can do that. A a wonderful woman named Julie Belshi, who went through this exact same thing uh, that Olivia and I have, and that's being, uh, you know, basically pushed out and your loved one being isolated. Uh, so we we have very knowledgeable people answering the phone. Julie Bell, she runs that hotline. So, so if you need help and if you're going through this, please give us a call. You can also write me at carrie at caseandcares.org, and that's K-E-R-R-I. But if you just look up caseandcares.org, you will see, you know, uh, the people you can get in touch with. It's right there. We also have the Patients' Bill of Rights up there. We have all the states that we have changed the laws in and the bills and what they say uh, on that site as well. Okay, Carrie, and for our listeners, Kasem is spelled K-A-S, like Sam, E-M, and it's Kasem Care. Yes. Is Care spelled with a C or a K? It's C-A-R-E-S. Kasem Cares, Okay. K-A-S-E-M, yes. CARES, C-A-R-E-S, and yes. it's .org? 
Yes, it is, dot .org. And a lot of people, you know, listening to your show will probably know the story because it was so public, my father being Casey Kasem, who started the American Top 40 show. And for those of your younger listeners, he uh, did 350 cartoons, and he was shaggy on Scooby-Doo. So a lot of people knew who he was, and, and I got a lot of mail from people all over the country saying, this is happening to me, but I don't have a famous last name. I don't even have any, I don't have money for a retainer for a lawyer. I haven't seen my mom. I haven't seen my dad in years. And, uh, and, and finally people are, I think this country is, is waking up to the fact that guardianship and conservatorship need to change. And Carrie, people would like to contact you. Is your contact information all on the website? It is. It is. Okay, great. The other resource I wanted to bring to your attention is that um, there is a fabulous documentary, It's called, and it's available on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, it's called The Guardians, and it is... Um, Carrie, you might want to talk a little bit about that. Sure. But it, uh, I've bought, I can't tell you how many cases of copies of The Guardians and have given it out to friends and colleagues, and it's an incredible resource. So um, talk yeah, about see, that a little bit. Okay, before you talk about that, sure. though, because we're going to go to break in a minute, um, the Guardians can be gained by, is it on a DVD that you can order from it Amazon? Is, yeah. or something? Okay. Yes. You can order from Amazon? Yes. Okay. And, uh, okay, that that's a very good tip. I Having been through this with my own mom, I mean, I wasn't, uh, um, my mother didn't have fraud committed against her, but caring for an elder mother is challenging at most, or an elderly parent. And my husband also had a situation with his with his dad where he was built by by his uh, adopted granddaughter. So um, I, I get what you're talking about. It's really important. But we want to take go to quickly to a break so we can uh, talk about PI Magazine, who's one of our favorite sponsors. We'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. 
for a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F-R-A-N-C-I-E at PISDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm talking to Olivia Robinson, who investigates fraud, and Carrie Kasem, who is um, the mover and shaker of the Kasem Cares Foundation. Uh, we're just talking about the Guardian movie. I guess it's a movie documentary uh, on Netflix. Uh, would you talk about a little bit about that, Carrie? Sure. Yeah. Um, the Guardian is probably one of, if not the best movie explaining what is going on in this country uh, and how guardianship reform is so necessary. Uh, People don't realize that uh, people that you don't know can come in, take your parents, put them under guardianship, meaning they become them. When somebody puts somebody under guardianship, the person that does it actually becomes that person. They make every single call for them, everything from medication. And a lot of times they'll change the will and estate plans. They'll sell the home that was supposed to go to the family in the name of taking care of this person. Uh, and it's, it's, it's legal crime. What, what some of these guardians do, and I'm not saying all guardians are bad because there are, uh, guardians that are good. And there are some guardians that are, are definitely needed, but the ones that I deal with because of the, the foundation I've created and, and who calls me, they're dealing with very corrupt guardians. And this film really shows how bad it gets. It's, it's, it's focused in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. And the woman who actually answers the phone and runs the support line for my foundation, Case and Cares, Julie Belshi is in it. Another amazing advocate named Rick Black is also in it. Terry Williams. Um, and the man who made the film, Billy Mintz, uh, really did a phenomenal job. It is a absolute horror story. And if you think this can't happen to you, think again. I played this film uh, to it, it, my conference last year. Um, and it was, I, I, I've teamed up with the District Attorney's Association of California. And every year we do a conference with them. So I got to play this for District Attorneys across 
the country, uh, social workers, police uh, uh, detective to investigate elder crime, elder abuse. And I've never had such a powerful reaction to, I want to help you. We need to change this. I can't believe this is going on. We've never seen it this bad. So if you have a chance to watch The Guardian, uh, please do. You can find it on iTunes. You can find it on, like Olivia said, Amazon. Um, okay. Watch it. Watch it. I have oh, another got- resource for you, too. Um, tomorrow, if for those people that are in Los Angeles, there's going to be a screening of The Guardians at noon at UCLA, and mm-hmm. it's uh, sponsored by the UCLA School of Law, and there's going to be a discussion afterward. So this starts at noon at UCLA, and I'm going to be looking for a phone number if I can only find one. Uh, here we are. The, uh, you know what, I'll, I'm going to have to get back to you. Uh, I'm looking through my notes to try and find okay. it. So Go ahead. Yeah, uh, Carrie, I want to say that I uh, really admire you. This bill, on the visitation bill that you got passed in California, also passed in 12 states now, correctly, correct? Yes. And it's it, a version of... Nine- yeah, Sorry. nine others have adopted the same. Yeah, nine other states have adopted a version of the bill. Yes. Okay, nine other states. Okay, that's that's fabulous. Um, good yes. for you. For who who was it in California that uh, authored your bill? Well, it was. Uh, there were a few of us. It was uh, Assemblyman Mike Gatto and uh-huh. uh, my stepfather Bob Naylor and my lawyer at the time. I didn't know Bob was your stepfather. I know Bob. Oh, I also know my ghetto. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> no way. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, Bob Naylor. Robert Naylor. Yeah. I've fantastic. known him for years. He and I have worked together on That's legislation. So That's very interesting. Well, okay. but good for you. That is- uh, Thank you. you know, taking this across the country, it's an important area. And, um, some of the commonalities, let's just talk about that because I think this is really important. You've already, you guys have already mentioned one and that's isolating the person away from their family. So that's, that's a key, whether it's a caregiver, somebody living in the home, a power of attorney or whoever it is, they've somehow they've isolated them like, like uh, what happened to your father. Do you know, yeah. uh, Francie, I'm currently working on a case um, that where an 84-year-old mother with d- dementia has been kidnapped, and uh, I have been brought in by one of the family members. This mother has five children. Uh, she comes from a farm, a, a large farm, and the all five children are fighting. There are three different lawsuits, and uh, we believe, I still haven't found her, and I've been working on this for a month and a half at least, um, but we have uh, multiple locations where we believe she uh, is, may have been, may be, um, and we've had wellness checks uh, done by the police departments in each one. I've contacted the U.S. Attorney's Office hoping that they could do an overall wellness check simultaneously at each location. Um, they weren't able to do that, so we've now gone to each uh, law 
police department and uh, have had wellness checks done. We've had missing persons reports filed, and um, she's still not located. She's currently in contempt of court because she hasn't been produced. And so it's a, a, a talk about isolation. <laughs> That's a great mm-hmm. example. Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, it's very prevalent with elders. You know, I think the, the the biggest message here is that it can happen to anybody. People think that it can't yep, happen yeah. to them, but it really, when it comes to money, it can happen to anybody. Yes. One of the cases I, I wanted to um, talk about, if this is okay, is um, a case that has what I call a gang and Carrie knows about this case, too. Um, It started off Mm -hmm. with a very wealthy person who had sold his business for $100 million, and um, uh, somebody that had worked for him came in at the last minute. I believe, I can't remember whether she was a secretary or what role she had, but she became a wife his wife, as he was declining in uh, mental uh, capacity. And um, it was, she introduced him to two doctors, and I call the doctors the lead generators. They became um, the conduit for uh, their practice, which was really basically dealing with elders, uh, that were wealthy, that had dementia. That was their practice. And so they became a conduit uh, for business to a trustee, um, an uh, elder, uh, an estate, and uh, what am I trying to say? <laughs> a state trustee mm-hmm. and uh, attorney, trust and estates attorney. There we are. And yes. uh, she was sort of the hub for this gang, and the gang uh, consisted of um, financial advisors, realtors, all kinds of people that um, would normally be involved in an elder's uh, estate. And but she she became the conduit, and so the the elders were kind of farmed to her from these two doctors, and then they um, everybody made money. And so it wasn't just the one fellow that uh, sold his business for the $100 million, but they preyed on many, many other uh, elders that had dementia that were brought to their attention by these two doctors. So it was like a cookie cutter, and they did it over and over again. And so that was one case that is uh, horrific. but it it just shows that it isn't necessarily just one person that is preying on uh, on elders. Have these people ever been prosecuted? There's an no, ongoing. No, attempt. they're not prosecuted. Yeah, yeah. and I, I actually uh, was I'm on this case, and thanks to Olivia, I've done actual door knocks on these people with a camera in my in my hands and with you know with a with an investigative reporter. And uh, they run away, they hide, they hang up on us. You know, when you, to me, when you have nothing to hide and you've done something right, you toss them, hey, then there's nothing wrong here. Why are you in my face? I have nothing to hide. Um, except for one person, all of these people 
have run from us. So there is one person talking, and we're getting a lot out of this person about what really went on and what, I mean, it was, you know, this, this man who uh, worked his whole life and created a, um, his business, he was middle class, and in his 60s, he sold his company that he'd worked his whole life on for $100 million, and that's when these, you know, predators came in. And, uh, and out of the hundred million, sorry, Carrie, out of the hundred million, sixty million dollars is missing. Yep, and the and the money he left to all of his philanthropic um, endeavors, and to his kids and grandkids, and to uh, places he wanted to go, none of that money went to where it was supposed to go. None of it. He left his his alma mater five million dollars. He left. Um, he uh, was Catholic. He left nunneries, all this money. Nobody got anything except these people. Most of them now live in multi-million dollar homes. Uh, there is money missing. There is, uh, there's organizations that receive the money that, you know, this person didn't even know. They, they've received gifts and donations. And, and this, this, this man had where he wanted his money to go. So it's, it's a really, you know, sad situation, these people, what I have seen and what my opinion is, is they're monsters. And if you don't have anything to hide, why aren't you saying it? So Carrie, if I were, if I were an heir, an heir to this estate, what recourse do I have? Okay. So the, 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 the kids did do everything they could to get justice. They hired lawyers, but the lawyers didn't fight hard enough. Like Olivia said, they don't know what they're doing or they, they get into the, they, they, they talk to the other lawyers, they get afraid, they don't want to continue with the lawsuit. Uh, what happened to them was unjust, was wrong, but bad, bad uh, advice. Uh, judge was, I don't, I, I don't know enough to say if the judge was in the pocket of these people. I, I don't want to say that, but I, judging by the calls and by the court transcripts, I don't understand what went on. They basically shut down the kids, told them that they uh, that they they really had no legal recourse, or they did things wrong. So now they can't reinvestigate or reopen things. Uh, the uh, the man who said that he was going to open investigation and he had opened an investigation. Uh, this is we're talking in the the higher level of the feds. Uh, when I when I went and I talked to some of the people, especially some of the the people who would talk to me, some of the people that. If you're doing an investigation, you would talk to, in fact, be the first person to talk to. Nobody was talked to. So I don't believe there was even an investigation done. If you do an investigation, you, you talk to the players that are around this person making the decisions for uh, a person at the end of life or the person, you know, uh, that was closest to. And these people never were, were asked any questions. They were never investigated. They were never brought in. They were never told there was an investigation going on. So this leads me to believe that there's something going on uh, at a higher level. Um, you know, this is, this is what I'm gathering. So this is all opinion. Uh, but why wouldn't you, if, there, if I was under investigation, um, then I would probably know, right? Somebody would call and say, hey, listen, we're looking into this. We, we, we have some questions to ask you. Why were you here? Why did you do this? That's what you do when you investigate. You don't ignore the biggest players in the game. 
I can tell you, Francie, that um, most of my clients that have had court, have taken their case to court, have had lengthy years and years of litigation. As I mentioned, it's been very costly. They've had attorneys that have quit, as in the case that uh, Carrie and I are talking to you about. Um, And the court experience has always been very problematic and very unsatisfactory. And I just wanted to uh, tell you what the judge said in my case at the end. And... um, this is after, as I mentioned, I'd spent half a million dollars pursuing it and four years of my life. Um, she said, probate court is not for the middle class. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is an appalling statement. It's like, who is, it, who is probate court supposed to be for? I thought probate court or all courts were for all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's a troublesome environment. Well, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, um, you know, um, we, we all know uh, estate and trust attorneys, people that plan estates and people that uh, handle probates and things like that. And those attorneys are not typically, A, they're not litigators. They typically don't go to court and litigate. And secondly, unlike criminal defense attorneys, they're not used to working with investigators. I know seldom of those attorneys that ever use an investigator, including somebody that's in, our, in my own family. So, so I think that the, one of the problems is that attorneys aren't, aren't getting the skills they need to handle these kind of fraudulent cases. I agree, and I wonder, um, in retrospect, if I had filed a civil case along with my elder financial fraud case uh, in probate court, uh, I think that the results would have been very different, because uh, civil and criminal uh, litigation uh, is handled very, they take fraud very seriously. Correct. I, you know, I think you're right. I mean, I think that uh, that people that are listening or in this is in this kind of a situation might consider doing exactly that. Now, the problem always is the amount of money it takes, because attorneys no longer take very seldom take cases on contingency because they're so expensive. Yes, yes, that's true. Very true. So, yeah. So, uh, there's no easy answer here, is there? No, there isn't. There isn't. But I can tell you that the difference between um, the first attorney that I had that quit in the, at a critical point in my case and the second attorney that I hired, uh, the second one was straight up. He was a absolute straight-talking guy, and had I had him from the very beginning, uh, the outcome would have been incredibly different. Yeah. Yeah. That, so, you know, and that's the problem, because <laughs> when you hire an attorney, unless they've been highly recommended by somebody you respect and you've seen them in action, you don't know what you're getting. That's true. And one of the complicating things for people that are in small communities, you often don't have a choice. 
um, in in the uh, environment where my litigation took place, there were probably five or six uh, trusts and attorneys that operated in probate court. So the it was slim pickings. And I, the second attorney after the first one quit, I went outside that jurisdiction uh, because I knew that uh, it was incestuous and I wasn't likely to get a straight shot. Well, and, and Olivia, having grown up in a small community, uh, all of those relationships are tainted because everybody knows everybody and nobody wants to cross the other person and make, you know, make enemies. That's right. And, you know, it, the first hearing, in our first hearing, the judge was talking, yucking it up with the um, opposing counsel about yeah. parties they'd attended. So, as yeah. I said, it's incestuous. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you're much better off to be in an urban area <laughs> when you have a situation like this than a small community. It's so, true. so what's the takeaway, you guys, uh, both you and Carrie and Olivia? What's the takeaway for people that are listening to this show? Call Carrie Kasem. <laughs> okay, call Carrie. <laughs> All right. That's so sweet. Um, but the takeaway is prevention, prevention, prevention. So once you're in it. And once your loved one has been isolated and there is being elder abuse perpetrated, because once you isolate an individual, you can financially abuse them, sexually abuse them, uh, verbally abuse, abuse them, uh, physically abuse them, right? That's the first step to any kind of abuse from child abuse uh, to uh, elder abuse. You isolate. So you've got to, got to, if you are having an issue with mom or dad or you're having an issue with their spouse, or another sibling, and the sibling uh, is, you know, you, you don't play. I, I hate when I hear this. Well, I'm just, you know, if we if we stay nice, if we're okay, we'll be okay. That's not true. One out of four people is a sociopath, and you, when you understand what a true sociopath is, it doesn't matter how nice you are to them, doesn't matter what you do for them, doesn't matter what you buy them, how you act, they have no empathy for you. And if if you if you do not take precaution now, and you lose your mom or dad to a sociopath, you're going to have a very hard time getting them back. So what you do is you sit down with mom and dad and the entire family and you film it and you ask them what they want. What do you want? You film them making their trust and estates. You, they turn to the camera and they say, you know, and this could be just on a video, like a little iPhone video. Uh, if anybody in my care when I'm older or vulnerable keeps me away from my friends and children, name the friends and children, then they should be removed from my care immediately. Doesn't matter if it's my wife, doesn't matter if it's my child, doesn't matter if it's uh, another caretaker. If, they, if I am kept from my friends and family, they should be removed from my care immediately. Hold up a newspaper while making this video so they see the date. Because a lot of times these perpetrators will say, well, we don't know when they, if they were cognizant. We don't know if they were under duress. We don't know this. Right. So make sure there's a date there uh, and, and something that they can refer back to when they knew you were cognizant and OK. But if you do not start talking to your mom and dad now about what they want, what they want, how do you want to die? How do you, do you want, you know, uh, a do not resuscitate? Where do you want your money to go? You know, where we talk about this, because if you don't, somebody else will decide it for you. And it happens all the time. I get phone calls every day. As I was on this call with, with you, on this show, with you, Francie and Olivia, I've received two calls from people needing help. 
and another at Tech. Oh. So I see it every day. Don't think it can't happen to you. Watch The Guardians, the movie The Guardian, and it, you will see what goes on in this country. It is a very terrifying thing, and people should, should be scared so that we can change the laws in this country so that when we get older or we get sick, we are protected. It's very important. I really like the video idea. That is a fabulous idea. Uh, I, I really encourage everybody to do that. I wish I had done that with my mom, uh, although it wasn't a problem, but uh, it's a really good idea. Uh, so uh, we're yes. almost run out of time here. Olivia, would you just go through the list of commonalities that you see in all elder financial abuse cases? Yes, we've talked about isolation. Uh, the other is that perpetrators often are the ones that imp- impose the restricted ask- access. Um, there's theft, fraud, and physical abuse is what I see. I also see theft of large sums of money. Um, multiple parties, we talked about the gang as I call them, multiple parties may be complicit in taking advantage of an elder. Um, also, from my experience, most of my clients have had troublesome court experiences, including where attorneys have quit, and uh, the results have almost always been unsatisfactory. That's a sad commentary. It's uh, a hugely sad commentary. Yeah. yeah. I wanted to add one more thing to Carrie's uh, suggestion, and that is police wellness checks are a very good mm-hmm. thing to remember. That is if you have an address. <laughs> if, yes, if you have an yeah, address. They, yes, they are, yeah. but they won't get the, the police won't tell you much. You know, they'll say it's they're fine. They won't yeah. give you any information. They won't. Do, and if you're doing police wellness check, you're way too far ahead. You have okay. not prevented it. But right. that is at least something that you can do. All right, you guys, this is great. Thank you so much, Carrie. Thanks for joining the show. I'm sorry you had trouble. Olivia, thanks again. Uh-huh. You're a, a great guest, both Thank of you. you. Um, good luck to you on your venture. And for the rest of you, it's PIs Declassified. Thanks for listening. I'm Francie Keeler. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 